I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Congratulations, true crime addicts. We survived another week. It is Friday, December 3rd, 2021, and these are the top true crime stories in the world. Um, <laughs> no doubt about it, the top true crime story this week is the Ghislaine Maxwell sex trafficking trial, which has just started this week. And uh, many of us didn't think she'd make it this far. We thought maybe she'd end up like Epstein. Um but here she is, and the trial is bringing out all sorts of crazy info. Um, just to recap, Ghislaine Maxwell is accused of uh, trafficking teenage girls for Jeffrey Epstein on his private island. They would take this jet called the Lolita Express, and really, that should have been a tip-off, right? If you name your jet Lolita, he didn't really do that. That came later. But um, So she supposedly helped bring these girls in, and now she's standing trial, and uh, a lot of people are pretty uh, scared of who she might name later on, um, but really, if you delve into Ghislaine Maxwell's story, it reads like something from like Jonathan France and a, or Donna Tartt. Um, it's a look into like this elite society and, and her family with fingers in, in everything. I went down the rabbit hole today, and I brought some stuff back for you. It's really wild. Uh, first of all, Ghislaine, she was the daughter of Robert Maxwell, who was this media mogul type of guy. He was a member of the UK Parliament and a major fraudster. She grew up in a 53-room mansion in England, the youngest of nine children. Everybody says she was her father's favorite. Um, then when she got a little bit older, her father was the one that introduced her to this charming young man named Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, the thing, I don't know if you've ever met uber rich people, but there's one thing that, that 
that they do differently than like the people that have the flashy wealth, the the nouveau riche as they call them, the people that have kind of uh, got their wealth pretty quickly over time. Those type of people are on on media and they want you to know how much money they have. The uber rich, people like Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, who grew up like this, they don't brag about it. They're quiet about it. They're quiet about what they're doing. They don't leave a trail. And that was the problem with, with both Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine, is there wasn't a lot of breadcrumbs to follow because they always, from birth, kept it pretty pretty tight, pretty quiet. Um, back to Ghislaine's father. In 1991, her father, Robert, his body was found floating in the ocean near the Canary Islands. And uh, it, it, it looked as though he fell off his yacht. Now, the, the yacht, by the way, the name of the yacht was the Lady Ghislaine, um, which I find kind of creepy. Like, if you're an uber-rich guy, you've got nine kids, you're, you're married, um, is it weird that you're naming your yacht after your youngest kid, your daughter? I think it's a little strange. Uh, the Guardian newspapers reported on Robert Maxwell for years, and here's a quote from one of their articles about the, this weirdness. Even now, they say, there's talk of suicide or murder, perhaps by Mossad. They don't really even know how he died. There's, you know, was it an accident? Some people say he was peeing over the side of the, the yacht like he did some, some nights. Um, some say suicide. And some say murder. There's uh, circumstantial evidence that Robert Maxwell was a spy and uh, tied up somehow with uh, Mossad, which is the Israeli uh, kind of super secret uh, MI6 CIA type organization. After his death, uh, they looked into Robert Maxwell's businesses. He had a bunch of businesses. And they found 460 million pounds missing from pension funds at his companies. I don't know that they ever figured out exactly where that money went. That's a lot of money. So some people think he knew that was coming and committed suicide. Other people think that had something to do with his murder. It's weird. Ghislaine, by the way according to reports, always believed that it was murder. Ghislaine herself disappeared after Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, nobody could find her for a while. Everybody was looking for her. She was like the most wanted woman in the United States for a while. And um, turned out she was hiding out in New Hampshire, kind of like uh, uh, Walter White from, from Breaking Bad. Uh, she went to the vacuum guy and, and he and he put her up in a cabin in New Hampshire or something. Um, but eventually they did find her. They arrested her. She's been in, sitting in prison waiting for her trial. And uh, just Wednesday, there was a victim that testified that she was sexually abused by both Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell when she was still a teen. She said that Epstein took her to meet Trump, Donald Trump, former president Donald Trump, at Mar-a-Lago when she was just 14. Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell, is alleged to have procured underage girls for Epstein for years. And, uh, you know, the uh, this woman who testified mentioned Trump. Uh, other names that have been mentioned, 
Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Bill Gates. Newsweek once published a list of all the people that were on the flight passenger manifests for um, Epstein's jet. And these people include Kevin Spacey, super creep, uh, former astronaut John Glenn, big surprise. That's that's kind of surprising. Now, just because their names are on this list, by the way, doesn't mean they got busy with these these teenage girls. It you know, Epstein had his fingers in everything. He was he a uh, philanthropist. He donated to lots of charities, and you know, before the secret was out, what he was really doing, I'm sure a lot of these people just wanted kind of an in with him and his people. So just because they're on this list doesn't mean they're creepy. But it's weird. This list is weird. Uh, astronaut John Glenn, violinist Itzhak Perlman, which I only know how to pronounce because I listen to NPR, and Robert Kennedy Jr. There's one other little interesting thing about Ghislaine Maxwell herself. This is a uh, – I'd heard this rumor for years, but this was just in a uh, an article by uh, .com, um which, you know, it's, it's, it's no New York Times – but I'm telling you, it was, it was well reported. And if you want to read the article, it's in uh, my sources at the end of the, the liner notes. Um, but here's the thing. Ghislaine Maxwell seems to be a Redditor, a very famous Redditor, commenter on Reddit, who went by the name Maxwell Hill. That's her last name, Maxwell. And Hill refers to the name of the mansion. If you have a 53-room mansion, you're going to want to name it. Um, and this Maxwell Hill was a very active user on Reddit. She posted every day, and there's been absolutely no posts since her arrest. Um, Maxwell Hill was the first Redditor to collect one million karma, which is a big deal on Reddit, the fake internet points. And she's considered a charter member of the site. Um, this Maxwell Hill, who appears to be Ghislaine, posted about the legislation of child pornography and correcting the use of words like uh, pedophile in some other posts. So it's interesting. Um, she seemed prolific even when Epstein was being investigated. And if you're, if you're a big enough poster on Reddit and if you follow it enough, um, you can influence public opinion by posting certain stories, by commenting enough, by, by getting that following. So... There's thoughts that maybe that's what she was doing. Uh, anyways, if she's found guilty, it'll get very interesting. Because then, and this has all been about getting her to roll and name names. So uh, watch watch for that. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what comes after the trial. Another top story this week comes from the world of uh, the literati, literature, the the people in and around uh, Union Square in New York City who decide what gets published and by whom and, uh, and, and, uh, and who gets to sell millions of copies of books. Um, this involves Alice Siebold, who you might remember as the author of Lovely Bones, which sold millions of copies a few years ago. Um, Lovely Bones is a very interesting book. I read it. Uh, it's very kind of stream of consciousness mind of a of a of a girl if i have this right if i'm remembering right who was murdered and you're kind of hearing her voice afterwards as she's trying to put together exactly what happened and, and help to solve her murder it reminded me a lot 
of the Amy Mihalovic case. I often wondered if Alice Siebold um, was familiar with Amy's case, which I've written about extensively. Uh, weird little coincidence, the woman who found Amy Mihalovic's body, her last name was Siebold. Uh, spelled a little differently, though. Anyways, that's neither here nor there, although I like the synchronicity of stuff like that. Uh, here's what happened with Alice Siebold. Um, in 2002, oh, that is when Lovely Bones was published, and um, before that, she wrote this book called Lucky, and uh, it detailed her very personal own experience as a freshman at Syracuse University when she was assaulted and raped. This happened May 8th, 1981. She was 18 years old, freshman at Syracuse University. She was uh, heading back home or where or her dorm or where she was staying. She was walking through a tunnel near campus when she was assaulted and, and raped by an African-American man. Um, police investigated right away. They could not find this guy. They could not find a suspect for this crime. Months passed. Five months later, Alice Siebold was walking down the sidewalk. She sees a black man who she believes is her rapist. She calls police right away. They show up. The guy's gone. They couldn't find him. One officer says, hey, maybe it's this Anthony Broadwater. I, I think they knew him from around town, and he had been seen in the area that day. So they bring this guy in, Anthony Broadwater. And... uh they brought him in for a lineup, and they built a case around him. And the evidence against this Anthony Broadwater for the rape of Alice Siebold was two things. It came down to two things. One, Alice's uh, own testimony and hair analysis. <clears throat> Apparently they had hair from the rape scene, and they compared it. But we later learned that, that it's faulty. This test they did, faulty. So really, all they have is their testimony. And she believes she sees this guy five months later. Broadwater, though, is convicted. And he spent 16 years in prison. And every time he came up for parole, they're like, hey, dude, if you just admit to what you did, just like in Shawshank Redemption, right, uh, we'll let you go. You know, you can get out on probation. And he wouldn't do it. He's like, he, he, he'd rather stay in prison longer than admit to a crime that he didn't commit. And sure enough, he didn't commit the crime there's a producer adapting Siebold's book, Lucky, and he started having some doubts about the uh, veracity of the evidence against Broadwater, hired a private investigator, found all sorts of things wrong with the case. One of the things they discovered was that that police lineup where they brought Broadwater in, Alice picked the wrong person in the lineup. And Siebold, in her defense, said the prosecutor back then coached her to do the things she did and say the things she did. She apologized last week. Here's what she says. The fact remains that 40 years ago, he became another young black man, brutalized by our flawed legal system. I will forever be sorry for what was done to him. Um, there's some That statement's problematic for a lot of reasons. She was one of the main reasons he ended up in prison. So I think it's kind of unfair to put the whole onus on the justice system on um, what happened with the prosecutor. Although, again, keep in mind she was 18. She had just suffered major trauma. Regardless, it's a mess. The wrong guy ended up in prison for this for 16 
years. The publisher has stopped distributing Lucky. Now, they haven't said they've pulled it for good. They're not destroying copies. Uh, there, There's talk already of her rewriting some of this this uh, uh, Romana Clef, they would call it, this barely disguised memoir. Um, and uh, But look for... You know, here's what I think is going to happen. I think in, in like a year or two, there's they're going to fix that book. It's going to come back out again. And she's going to – there will be a new memoir about this whole thing, probably called Unlucky. I'm calling it now. Um, but we're left with a new mystery, right? Like if it wasn't Broadwater and it's not Broadwater, who the hell assaulted Alice Siebold? Hopefully they still have these hairs. Hopefully they can retest evidence and we can find out who really did this. Right now, it's back to being an unsolved mystery. Uh, finally, this week, we got to talk about the Michigan shooting. That's the other top true crime story. Um, 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly was arrested after a school shooting Tuesday in Michigan that left four kids dead and seven injured. Among the dead are Hannah, St. Juliana, Tate Meyer, Madison Baldwin, and Justin Schilling. Um, there's, this is very new. So there's a lot of new info coming out of this. This is the deadliest school shooting since I think 2018. It is the 29th school shooting just this year. Uh, for once it was not a, uh, an AR-15 style rifle, but, uh, he was using a nine millimeter, six hour semi-automatic that his dad purchased four days before the shooting. Uh, just a couple hours before the shooting took place, uh, Crumbly's parents met with teachers and the principal. And teachers at the school were concerned about his behavior. Uh, you should check out the reports on CNN. They show school surveillance, or they talk about school surveillance that shows Crumbly with a backpack coming into the school. He goes into the bathroom, comes out without the backpack, and he's got the gun in hand. And he starts firing, walking down the hallway at what they call a methodical pace, just starts killing people. Until the police arrive, at that point he sets the gun down and surrenders. I have a lot of questions about this, and I think some of them will be answered in the coming weeks. Um, top of my list is, why did the dad buy this 9mm Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun four days behind before the shooting? Now, what was going on in that family, we know. They had been contacted by teachers, concerned about his behavior. There were even rumors at that school of a school shooting. Why do you then, even if you have in the back of your mind this bad feeling, why, why, do, you, why do you bring a gun into that situation? Why then, of, of, of all time, did the father bring the, buy that gun and bring it into the house? That, that troubles me. Not saying he had anything to do with it. I just th I think there's more to do with that timing, and I'm 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 personally interested in that. Um, the other thing here is the prosecutors just charged Ethan uh, with four counts of murder and also terrorism charges, and he's charged as an adult. And we got into this a little bit with Kyle Rittenhouse case. Ethan Crumbly, you 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 got to check out his picture. He's 15 years old. Uh, my son, by the way, is 14, um, and I can remember being 14, 15, 16, feeling invincible, feeling like, uh, like an adult, but 
they're children. They're they're kids. Um, they've still got the that baby fat on their face. Uh, the question is, should we be charging them with as an adult? You know, when they when they commit these terrible crimes, um, how? I mean, you that gets the the bigger question behind this, which is, can a fifteen year old kid act rationally? Can they be held accountable for adult actions when they're still a child? Um, I've talked before about how the human brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25 years old, and there's thoughts out there and efforts, especially in Illinois, where they're trying to change the age of uh, juveniles to 25 for that very reason. Um, But the whole system fails when we make exceptions like this and charge a 15-year-old kid as an adult. So, anyways, terrible tragedy. Too many school shootings. Uh, We're going to take a break. I'll be back in two and two with some news on genetic genealogy that will blow your mind. And we're back. Did you miss me? Uh, I have to tell you, so let's talk about genetic genealogy and things that have happened in the last week. Um... These cases are solved every other day now. It's it's very it's a it's a really cool time to be involved with this new new technique. So I, I got to tell you first about um, a, a weird case that we just got at the Porchlight Project. Remember Porchlight, um, as you've heard in in the break there, it's a nonprofit um, that I I formed along with other people uh, back in 2019. And we raise money for new DNA testing and genetic genealogy for cold cases here in Ohio. Um, we got off to a really good start and helped uh, Cuyahoga Falls police solve the 1987 murder of Barbara Blatnick for our first case. Uh, we just got a new case, and it's super cool. I want to tell you about it. Um, this is out of Erie County, Sandusky. Now, uh, I, I want to back up a little bit, though, um, because in my other life, I'm a novelist. Um, I've written a couple novels, uh, The Man from Primrose Lane, The Great Forgetting. But back to Primrose Lane, um, is, which is kind of the, the novel that, that started my publishing career. Um, it's about a uh, guy that used to work at Alt Weekly in Cleveland uh, who is investigating a murder. You know, write what you know type of thing. Kind of my own fan fiction or whatever. But it has a sci-fi twist towards the end. That's all I'm going to tell you. Uh, a couple years ago, I wrote a sequel to Primrose that has not been published yet. It's called Copperhead Island, hopefully one day, knock on wood. Um, But it starts out with this new mystery of this young woman uh, whose body washes up on the shore of Lake Erie near Sandusky. And uh, the police slowly figure out that she came from this private island on Lake Erie where, like, the one percenters live. And therein is the title, Copperhead Island, which is slightly... Loosely based on a real island on Lake Erie called Rattlesnake Island, which is owned by uh, it's a private island owned by some of our you know richest lawyers and and uh, media people, and they do super secret stuff there. Anyways, so I opened this book with this woman washing up on the shore of Lake Erie, and then uh, I'm presented with this case, the Erie County Jane Doe, who was a, a young woman's. Uh, body who washed up on the shore of Lake Erie, not far from Sandusky. And she's wearing a cocktail dress. And to this day, nobody knows who she is. And get this, she's found on my birthday. 
1980. March 30th, 1980, I would have turned two that day. Um, so it's so weird how this matches up with something I've written about before. Um, this case was brought uh, to us by one of our board members, Nick Edwards, who you might know from True Crime Garage. And uh, the Sandusky police have asked us to figure figure out who, who this woman is. And I think we're going to do it pretty quickly. We uh, just sent the evidence off to Bode Technology, who you hear just about every week solving some of these cases. They're going to do some new testing. And then we're going to get into the genetic genealogy of it. We've got to find out who she is. Once we find out who she is, the new mystery opens up. Who killed her? Why wasn't she reported missing? If she was reported missing, she must not be from the immediate area. And then you, you get into bigger ideas like, is it possible she's from Canada? You know, if you go, for, if you go, if you go north across Lake Erie, you're in Canada. Um, could she have fallen off a boat? Again, it, 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 it implies uh, murder. So um, Erie County Jane Doe, look for that. In the near future. Uh, here's another genetic genealogy case solved in the last week. This involves the murder of 13-year-old Heather Porter. Heather went missing on September 23rd, 1981. She was 13 years old. This happened in the Halethorpe neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland. A man was walking his dog when he discovered her body in a wooded area the next day after she was reported missing. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Semen was recovered at the scene, but never matched any suspects in the years since. Police recently sent the uh, sample to, you guessed it, Bode Technology. And that led genetic genealogists to one Jonathan, or I'm sorry, John Anthony Petrecha, Petreca Jr. as a uh, possible suspect. They looked into his past and they found out that this Petreca, he had a history of rape in the 60s and 70s. And he also lived in Halethorpe at the time of the murder, very close to where Heather Porter went missing. Unfortunately, Petreca died in 2000. But at least the family has, you know, I don't believe in closure for these sort of things, but at least they have an answer. And I know that is important to them. I want to tell you about one other genetic genealogy case this week. And because... I've got a bad feeling about this one, as uh, Han Solo says. Uh, this is the case of a 13-year-old uh, girl who was found dead. This happened in 1999. She was uh, living in the Bronx. Her name was Minerlis, Minerlis Soriano. She was found dead, wrapped in a garbage bag in a dumpster in Co-op City, about a mile from where she lived in the Bronx. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. The New York Daily News is reporting that 49-year-old Joseph Martinez was arrested this week for the murder of uh, Minerlis. Uh, and how did they get to him? Well, just like the other case, they found semen on her body. There was semen on the girl's shirt. Uh, but they did something a little different here. They did not use genetic genealogy. They used familial DNA, which is kind of wrapped up in the same thing, uh, but a, a little different. Here's what they did. They tested the semen. They tested the sample for specific markers that would match up with 
uh, profiles in their own offender offender database. So they're not using Gen, uh, GEDmatch or 23andMe. They're not using genetic genealogy to trace back the family tree and figure out the suspect that was in the neighborhood at the time. No. Um, they're looking for markers that match up with their offender system. So every time you get arrested for a felony or convicted of a felony in New York, you have to submit your DNA. And that DNA is held in their own database uh, so that you know somebody that's convicted of rape gets out, they rape again, they can quickly do a DNA swab, they get the hit, they get the match. But those those markers that they get from the DNA are very different from the markers that they search for in uh, GEDmatch and Family Tree. It's it's a different process. In Ohio, we have the CODIS system. Same thing, you're arrested for a felony, you swab, your DNA goes in the system. So if you ever reoffend, they can find you very easily. Well, um, one thing that you can do with that is these markers also match up with um, the Y chromosome, um, which is what passes from father to son uh, and to grandson. All the males in that family will have the same marker. So you can still use it to search for familial matches, and that's what they did in this case. Um, and they got a partial hit on uh, Martinez's father, Joseph Martinez's father, hit and so they're like, well, it's got to be a relative of him. So they went and looked into his sons, uh, and that's how they ended up targeting 49-year-old Joseph Martinez, who would have been, I think, 27 at the time of the murder in 1999. The problem is, and Martinez, by the way, he lived in the same uh, apartment complex as Soriano, the, the dead girl. Um, and he was living with his parents, I believe, at the time. Uh, here's the problem with Martinez. He has no criminal history. He's never been in trouble. Uh, he's beloved by his neighbors. They call him Jupiter Joe because he, he's an astronomy nut. He has uh, this telescope that uh, he takes out to the park and he invites kids over to, to see the moon and, and to see Jupiter. Um, he's the doting father of two girls. My question is, can a person who commits such a violent act sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl, strangling her, killing her, putting in her garbage bag. By the way, how do you get her from the crime scene, which is most likely that apartment, to that dumpster in Co-op City without getting caught, without having any accomplices? There's more to this story. It doesn't quite add up. I'm not saying that Martinez didn't do it, but I've got a lot of questions about this one, especially because of the process they used to identify him, which is not the same process that has been identifying all these these um, these killers using genetic genealogy. Uh, his father, by the way, because he was in the system, Martinez's father certainly has a criminal history. Um, his marker would match any male relative. They're saying they have a 100% match on Martinez himself, uh, but I want to see the evidence for that. I want to see it mapped out because I want to know if they're dealing with um, degraded DNA or if they're still using those stupid markers in their CODIS system, which I don't know could identify a person 100% if it was not the person already in their system, if, if, if you catch my drift. They could certainly identify Martinez's father, but just getting a partial match, uh, they would eventually, you, you got to eventually test the whole autosomal DNA. You got to test the whole thing. And I'm not sure that they did here. So keep an eye on this. Uh, I'd hate to see it as the first case of using familial DNA where the 
where they're wrong, but I don't like this one at all. Um, finally, I want to get into the, the pop culture of true crime this week. Here's here's the biggest thing that's going on right now. Um, do you have the TikTok? Uh, <laughs> I uh, I'm just figuring it out. I'm getting into it. It's it's becoming huge in the true crime world. It already has been, um, but uh, TikTok and its users have re-energized an old case. This involves the uh, an LA magazine has an excellent report on this. You can find it at the end. But um, this involves Eric and Lyle Menendez. And if you weren't alive in 1989 when this was happening, let me just say it was a really, really big case. It was on the news 24-7. It was one of the first cases covered by Court TV. Um, Here's what happened. On October 20th, 1989, uh, Eric Menendez, who was 18 years old at the time, and Lyle Menendez, his brother, who was 21, uh, they killed their parents violently. Uh, these kids were clean cut. They were very rich. They lived. Uh, their family lived in a Beverly Hills mansion. Their father Jose was an executive at RCA. Uh, his wife Kitty was there as well. Um, and uh, Eric and Lyle took turns shooting and killing their parents. They shot and killed their father while he was still in the chair watching TV. Then they chased Kitty until she slipped on her blood, and then shot her in the face. Uh, immediately after the killings, the police investigated it as a mob hit. They couldn't imagine that these clean-cut young men could have done it. Uh, and then Eric and Lyle did not do themselves any favors. They dropped out of college, and they spent their inheritance on all sorts of fun parties, fancy cars. And then uh, here's the twist. The truth came out when the mistress of Eric's shrink went to the police and said that uh, he had confessed during therapy to his counselor during a session. And uh, I believe they even had the confession on tape. Um, So they had that admission. The prosecutors went after them. They arrested them. became a big deal. Uh, Prosecutors during the trial portrayed Eric and Lyle as spoiled rich kids who just wanted insurance money and wanted to party with no responsibilities. The defense was largely ignored, and the defense was was not that they didn't do it, but that their father, Jose, had been molesting the boys for years, and this this built up and built up and built up until they until they killed him. Um, unfortunately, the opulence of of their lifestyle and their behavior played much better for TV. We mostly got the prosecutor's side on that, uh, and now these TikTok users are coming back and they're like, "Hey, you know." Why don't we take another look at the defense here? What if what if they were telling the truth and their father Jose was this terrible person who had been molesting them since they were they were little boys? And is it justified? And do they still deserve to be in prison? You know, this happened in 1990. They're still sitting in prison. They're still fairly young, <laughs> you know, in in life. Um, they can still get out. They still have some sort of life on the outside. Should they still be in prison for this, especially if what they're saying is true? Unfortunately, the Menendez brothers, they've exhausted all their appeals. Uh, one one option remains for them. They could, they could uh, try this writ of habeas corpus, which is what you could file with the court. Um, it has to do with uh, unlawful detention. They could argue that even though they've exhausted their appeals, they've proved that they acted in self-defense, 
therefore should not be in prison, therefore their detention is unlawful. It's a, it's a way around it, and and uh, I think it just might might happen. Uh, that's the uh, that's the news for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, remember, uh, check out this new app, Repod, uh, where you can, uh, you know, I post on there after every new episode. We can have a little discussion. You can ask me questions, and it's just a really fun um, uh, app for podcasts. Uh, so if you're a big podcast fan, you definitely need it. Check out Repod. Um, that's it. And, you know, it is another Friday. And we're done with the work week. And that means we got to, 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 get down. Damn it. True Crime This Week is a Fearful Symmetry production. Our theme music is Trash Town Boogie by Mr. Smith, used under a Creative Commons license for use in this show. All sources are listed in the liner notes at the end of this episode. If you like the cut of my jib, please check out my other podcast, Philosophy of Crime. Unless quoted directly from a source, all content should be considered the opinion of the host. That's me, James Renner. See you next week.